This is the Inside the News podcast, a collaboration between WCCO Radio and the Star Tribune. I'm your host, Jordana Green. In this series, we're looking at the issues raised in the Star Tribune's investigative reports, Denied Justice. They're about how law enforcement in Minnesota has failed to adequately investigate and prosecute sexual assault and rape. We're going to look closely in this episode at the issue of serial rapists. In their investigation, Star Tribune reporters Brandon Stahl and Jennifer Bjorhus reviewed more than 1,000 rape cases, focusing on the years 2015 and 2016. They uncovered troubling trends about why investigators often fail to connect the dots between one case and another, findings they told me about in a recent visit to our studio. We looked at all rapes and sexual assaults reported to police in, um, that were um, inactive, right, because we don't have access to open cases, mm-hmm. uh, from 2015 and 2016, where the victim was 13 or older and it was not incest, so it was not a family situation. What we found in the numbers was a clear indication that there are repeat offenders in here. There were um, more than 50, you know, uh, uh, rapists that we easily found in our data where they had either been a suspect in a previous case or they'd been charged in a previous case and it was maybe dismissed or they were convicted in a previous case. In dozens of these cases, the investigator never, never spoke with the suspect often never did a background check of the suspect to learn of the criminal history. The consequences of that lapse, when investigators fail to take a simple step that would allow them to understand if a suspect has a history of sexual violence, is something that Amber Mansfield, who is the focus of this podcast, has thought a lot about. She told her story to Brandon and Jennifer. Amber Mansfield says she was raped by a man who she used to call a friend. I hung out with his brothers, went skating with them. Um, I've known them since I was 11 and 12. For legal reasons, we cannot name the man she says raped her in this podcast, so we'll call him John. Amber and John lost touch as adults. Both had trouble with the law. His rap sheet began at 18 and included problems with drugs and theft. She struggled with addiction and had a prostitution conviction. But she began to turn her life around after the birth of her daughter, Samira, in 2010. She moved to a small town near the Iowa border. Then one day, she got a call from prison. It was her old friend, John. I was told um, he was in there for... um... Part of his charge was assault on an officer, which I later found out was while he was in prison, he got that charge. So I ended up going and hanging out a few times when he got out, and it was fine. They kept in touch for several years, and after his release from prison, John and Amber became romantically involved. But it wasn't long before she saw his violent side. One night he became enraged when someone called her and she wouldn't tell him who it was. I just kind of went into a frenzy, and I took my car keys, and I stood there, and he threw my phone. I've never seen a, I never knew a phone could, like, explode. And the next thing I know, I was waking up on the floor. He had punched me out first. 
he was on me, and I remember as he was choking me, Samira will never see you again, and this is what it feels like to take your last breath. John took Amber to the hospital, but told her to tell the staff she got drunk and hurt herself. Then he got spooked by the security guard and forced her to leave without getting treatment. He took her to his mother's house. Amber was limping. John had beaten her so badly that she was barely able to swallow. Exhausted and in pain, she went into a bedroom to lay down. John followed. I wanted to leave. I wanted to call for help. I couldn't do anything. I didn't have a phone. I couldn't call and make sure my daughter was okay. I had no numbers. I mean, I definitely wasn't there willingly, but he had my car keys. He, there was nothing I could do. Next thing I know, <clears throat> my pants are getting taken off, and I can't stop him. No, I didn't scream or any, you know, any of that. Like, I didn't know what else was going to happen. And he climbed on top. I mean, me yelling, what is that going to do? Nobody's coming to save me. <laughs> he did what he needed to do, and I just remember the end. It was like he was some, like, a wild animal, like, when he had released. And it was like the loudest, like a tiger or something had climbed up and had claimed its prize. Like, it had won the battle. And I was scared. I was... I was disappointed in myself. I was just, and the main thing that hit my mind was, please just let me make it back to Samara. That's it, that's all. A few days after her rape, Amber managed to get away from John and back to her daughter and family. Her sisters, together with a mental health caseworker, convinced Amber to file a police report and go back to the hospital. When two officers with the Minneapolis Police Department came to question Amber, she remembers that they weren't just interested in her account of what had happened. They also questioned her about her past. At one point was basically told me it was my fault and how am I going to prove it or, you know, and I don't know if, like, they know who I was when I got there or what and, you know, the way I lived and my past and... Things like that, you know, I have a little bit of a record. You know, I never thought, like, I would be not treated as a human because I had took some wrong turns in life. I didn't think anybody ever asked to be raped. Amber gave the officers John's phone number and address. They took her statement and told her someone would be in touch. But no one called. Amber told the Star Tribune officers did go to John's house, knocked on the door, and talked to his mother. That's when Amber says the harassment began. He would not stop calling her. Five to ten times a day, trying to keep me trapped in what I was doing. And, you know, he knew that my mind was done at that point. Like, he knew it had, it had broke me. Amber tried to do all the right things. She completed a rape kit and kept whatever evidence she could, like her underwear. She immediately filed for a harassment restraining order, writing in her petition that she feared he was going to come to Wyndham and get me. You know, I'm at home with butcher knives in my door, and I sleep with knives in my bed, and I have a daughter. It's one thing to be a single mom already, but to be that scared all the time is just, it's, it's tiring. It's... Not a good feeling, you know. 
Mansfield's police case file, obtained by the Star Tribune and reviewed by WCCO Radio, shows just two brief entries in that period by the supervisor of the sex crimes unit, Lieutenant Mike Sorrow. We talk with him later in the podcast. The first entry, undated, says only, quote, cannot prove sexual assault. The second entry is from August 10th, nearly two weeks after Mansfield reported being raped. In it, Lieutenant Sorrow wrote that Mansfield contacted him and, quote, stated she did not want to go on with this investigation, end quote. At the time, Amber feared for her life and felt the MPD wasn't doing anything to protect her. I just couldn't take it anymore. You guys aren't doing anything. You guys are putting me in more danger than any good that you are doing. Like, I don't fucking get it. Help me. I'm in danger. And I said, you know what? Just drop it. Like, just leave him alone. Leave him alone because I'm more scared than I've ever been in my life. Well, okay, ma'am. If you drop it, that's it. That's all. I'm perfectly fine with that because I'm more safe this way. Amber told police to drop the case, but that decision would eventually come back to haunt her when a few months later she would see John's mugshot on the news. But for now, as the Star Tribune's Jennifer Bjorhus explained to me, Amber's case was essentially over. He said as best as he can see from looking at the case, he forwarded it on to domestic violence. And um, and the, the case ends. So no investigator, no one interviewed either Amber or John. No one went to the scene. No one looked at the underwear that she kept. Nothing? Nothing. And not only did they not interview Amber, but they didn't even call her to, you know, to to say, you know, we're not going to sign a detective or uh, let her know what was happening. But had police run a background check on John, they probably would have done all of those things. John is a registered level three sex offender, a convicted rapist, someone with a history of violence toward women, someone worth asking a few questions. The state of Minnesota designated him a dangerous offender. His first stint in prison wasn't for assaulting an officer, as he told Amber, it was for rape. As Jennifer explained to me, it wouldn't have been difficult for officers to find all of this out with a simple background check. The BCA uh, makes it very easy to do a criminal background check, and they do have access to a lot of that information from their squad cars or a call to uh, dispatch. Now, it might not be a full-blown criminal history of every last thing, but they can quickly find basic uh, facts about the person's criminal history. So if they had been in jail before, that would pop up? Uh, Yes. If he was a registered level three sex offender, would that pop up? Yes. Why wasn't this done in Amber's case? It would have been standard procedure for the responding officers to check that on on the suspect, especially when they, in this case, they had a name and, and everything. Uh, I spoke with one of the responding officers in that case, and he said he just can't remember whether they did it or not. But had they, you know, it should have been noted in the report, and it's not, because anything relevant is supposed to be noted in the report. The Minneapolis Police Department actually had a public fact sheet on him that I believe corrections helped put together. What happened? Total fumble, as far as we can see. With level threes, it, this is the part that just that just blows my mind. It's not like you needed a, a, a some sort of 
connection to a special database for those officers. All you needed was a connection to the Internet. This is very public information. It's on the DOC website. You know, when you want to type in and look for a level three sex offender, you go there, you type in the name, and it pops up. It would have been that easy. This was really troubling. How did the officer who took Amber's report not do a background check? I called Mike Sorrow. Now retired, Lieutenant Sorrow supervised the Minneapolis Sex Crimes Unit twice during his career, one stretch from July 2014 to September 2015. He was in charge during Amber's ordeal, but he told me he doesn't remember talking to her. He's the one who made those notes we referenced earlier in Amber's report. Sorrow was a 41-year veteran of the MPD. He described to me the criminal background check process. You know, like, like in our reporting system, I just put in the name and boom, all our reports for the last 20 years where this guy's in there pops up. And then I go to the individual reports and look them up, okay? But that's not going to tell me, you know, there's a possibility. ain't going to tell me a level three. And, and when I pull up the other report, if it's 40 pages long, I mean, come on, I'm not going to read the whole 40 pages. I'm going to skim. I'm going to, you know, skim the skim the 3% of it, it'll give me the 90% of the information in 10 minutes. Criminal history takes an hour to run between walking around and all that stuff. You multiply that by 700. And if there's only 700 suspects, some of them multiple suspects, that's that's 35% of my time for the year just doing criminal history checks. I mean, that's not efficient. It's not the most important part of your job? Um, it's not that. It's just I have to decide, uh, is this guy worth running a criminal history check on? Is this one not? Here's the problem with all this sexual assault stuff. 80, 85% of these sexual assaults are acquaintance, okay? They're acquaintance. And it's probably even higher than that. So it's, it's not somebody cutting your screen, crawling through your window. It's acquaintance. And with acquaintance, I have to be able to prove that the sex was not consensual. And if it's he says it is and she says it ain't, Good luck with that. That's going nowhere. Yet, Lieutenant Sorrow admits if his department did the background check, the outcome of this story may have been different. If I would have known at the time that he was a level three sex offender, even though the case was problematic, which it was as a sexual assault because of their prior relationships and things like that, I still would have pursued it um, more aggressively. And if not for sexual assault charges, found some other charges to charge this guy with because he's a very, very serious offender. So that's not part of the process when somebody comes in and says, I was raped. It's not part of the process to do a criminal background check? Not everybody, no. It just depends. You look at it and you decide what to do because it's, it's 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 a convoluted process. It probably takes a half an hour to an hour to do That makes me nervous. I live here. If I'm attacked, I want to make sure that somebody's doing a background check on this guy so they can put him away. It depends. If it, you know, I leave it up to the investigator and, and, all, and also myself. We look at it. Um, you know, if it appears no reason to do it, I don't. So, I, so I'm to spend 35% of my, my time running that unit, running criminal background checks, criminal histories. I guess if it keeps the streets safer. But it's not going to. Because remember, for every case that's going nowhere that I waste time on, that's time that could be spent on a case that could go somewhere. This one, th- my heart hurts for her. It feels um, like she was such a victim and, and nobody uh, helped her. Uh, you, you know what? On, on the scale of victims, no, she's not. She's not at the top. She's not at the top. I mean, was Amber's case not assigned for investigation because of her background? Um, I think that was probably the primary reason. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it's hard. It's hard to prove um, a sexual assault case when your victim is very problematic and her history 
the top of my head, I think she had some prostitution stuff going on. Um, I think she had, you know, a, a relationship with this guy and had had consensual sex with him in the past. I mean, I, I, I you know, not to be uneloquent, but it was, it was, a, it was a shit show. Okay. I mean, her age was maybe 30 years old. I mean, she's had a problematic life. Uh, I would assume since she's probably 10, if not since she was born. You know, sometimes victims have to take some responsibility for their decisions and their actions, okay? Because eventually it's all going to go before a jury, and a jury's going to look at it and say, are you kidding me? I mean, this this has been a shit show for 20 years, and what are we going to do with it? I mean, For someone who didn't know about John's background, Lieutenant Sorrow sure knew a lot about Amber's. Brandon and Jennifer say that's part of the problem. Because police... I think often see these cases where the woman does not appear to be sympathetic and they ignore it. I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of these rapes are are not being prosecuted or not being fully investigated. That seems so true. These are human beings. They're not some stereotypical perfect woman. You know, nobody is. As part of the Star Tribune investigation, Brandon and Jennifer assembled a panel of experts on sex crimes to review 160 of the cases they were reporting on and get feedback from other law enforcement officials. I spoke to Justin Boardman, a former detective in Utah who's now a sex crimes consultant. The Star Tribune reporters sent Boardman Amber Mansfield's rape case for review. Is a background check standard procedure when somebody reports a rape? It should be, yes. It should be. That would be best practices. Why do you think it wasn't done in Amber's case? Whether it was training, certainly. It could also be um, caseload and laziness. I would hate to um, throw that out there. However, a lot of the training is not there. But that is really basic police work. Um, If I go out on a case and somebody gives me a suspect name, I am going to my computer when I'm writing my report, and I'm going to look that person up to see if they have any active warrants, to get more information about them for my police report, whether I'm doing the follow-up right after I leave the scene, or whether it's going to investigations. I'm going to do most of that work before it goes to the investigators. So... It, it's basic. It's basic. I asked Justin how the lack of police intervention affects serial offenders. He doesn't feel like the system can touch him. It's a power and control situation. And now he's got power and control because the police aren't going to do anything and didn't reach out to him to talk to him, didn't take the case seriously, especially if he's already a registered sex offender. Most suspects of sexual assault are serial in nature. So they are going to do it again. And John did strike again. One night in 2015, two women were choked and left unconscious on the ground with their clothing askew in Minneapolis. As officers responded to help the women, they spotted John not far away. He was carrying the first woman's grocery bags and had her ID and cell phone and had the second woman's cell phone too. They immediately handcuffed him. This time, they checked and noted in the police report that he was a level three predatory sex offender. Amber remembers that night, too. I was at home, and I actually got phone calls from my sisters 
and everybody's like, turn on the news right now. And his face was plastered on every news channel and said he had been arrested for, they found two ladies half undressed and unconscious. And I felt just broken for them ladies. I just knew like, I, this happened because that officer didn't take it seriously. And now these two ladies who, I don't know what walk of life they came from. It doesn't really matter. Nobody should have to go through that, but it could have had been stopped. Even Lieutenant Sorrow remembers that part of Amber's case. I'm not saying she got initial great service, but eventually this man was brought to justice and convicted. After he tried to rape two other people. Um, and that happened. Amber said she called the Minneapolis Police Department and told them it was their fault that they had let John go before. Now, more than four months after reporting her case, Amber finally got a call from the MPD. Detective Stott Dunphy had been assigned to the most recent assaults. When he dug into the paperwork, he saw Amber's old report. He told me, I just want to let you know, I truly apologize for the way it was handled. At that point, I wasn't as much worried about my own as I felt an obligation to make sure these two other ladies got, you know, the justice that they needed to get. And I took it as it was my fault that it happened to these ladies because the officer didn't do anything about it because of who I was and not who I am and what I was going through. If Minneapolis police had properly investigated Amber Mansfield's case, it's possible that John's next victims would never have been assaulted. Identifying repeat offenders should be a big part of any sex crime investigator's job. As the Star Tribune reported, in early 2015, researchers at Case Western Reserve University began studying the DNA results of 433 previously untested rape kits from closed cases in the Cleveland area. More than half the assaults, thousands of rapes, were linked to repeat rapists. We reached out to the Minneapolis Police Department on several occasions for a comment on this podcast. At this time, they declined to be interviewed. Amber couldn't change the past, but now she felt a responsibility to fight back. He needed to be behind bars and whatever I needed to do, not, even, not for me, just for everybody else. And I also wanted to look him in the face and let him know he had not all the way won. I thought I had did that when um, he seen me walk into court. The look on his face, like, he couldn't believe it. Amber testified in court against John for the attacks on the other victims. John was convicted of multiple felonies, including attempted rape, first-degree aggravated robbery, and first-degree assault. He was sentenced to life in prison. It was reduced on appeal to 15 years, about 10 of which are likely to be served behind bars. I gained, I think for the first time, some pride. A whole lot of pride, I would say. I, I can tell my daughter that out of horrible things, I still got something good out of it. 
Amber and the prosecutors ultimately decided to dismiss charges against John in her case because she didn't want her past dredged up in court. The charges were gone, but Amber says she regained some self-respect. I feel like I gained it back by doing what I needed to do for these ladies and trying to make sure that they knew that they were safe and he was gone and didn't have to worry about looking around corners and, you know, they might still have to, but not as far as for him. They knew that he, that boogeyman was gone. Amber Mansfield is grateful some justice was served, but she and other rape victims will tell you, even if their perpetrator is behind bars, the crime is never really over. As a survivor, I try not to let it affect me, but I deal with a lot of um, mental health stuff and severe PTSD. Every now and then, something will trigger it. I, I'm watching and waiting for him to show up. It trickles all the way down. Like, to this day, it still affects my daughter. I'm sure the original victim's daughter and the two ladies after. In episode three of Inside the News Investigating Rape, how alcohol plays a role in prosecuting rape. The, the fact that I, you know, needed to call for a ride home, to me says that I, I definitely could not have consented. The fact that I don't remember anything still, two years later, that I, I don't have memories of what actually happened. There's no way I could consent. But because of the narrow way that laws have been interpreted in Minnesota in cases like mine, I won't, I won't see any justice. Joanna Howe says she was raped by the Lyft driver she paid to get her home safely. He admitted to having sex with her while she says she was incoherent. Hear why even a phone confession isn't enough to prosecute for rape. The Inside the News Investigating Rape podcast is created by me, Jordana Green, Jared Goyette, and Dan Colhane with WCCO Radio. With reporting and audio credits from the Star Tribune's Brandon Stahl, Jennifer Bjorhus, Mary Jo Webster, and Renee Jones-Schneider. Star Tribune editing credits are Abby Simons, Dave Hagee, Eric Wiffering, and Suki Dardarian. <laughs>